It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Speedway Show. Our topic today is Stand Your Ground, Self-Defense or License to Kill. This topic is the follow-on to last week's show entitled Trayvon Martin, 19 Things You Can Do, particularly um, if you did not catch that case, uh, that episode, I would encourage you to take a listen because in that show, I go through the ins and outs of the facts of the Trayvon Martin case very briefly but uh, I focus on the 19 things that I suggest that you do, and uh, if you listen to it, then some of the stuff that I say in this show is going to make sort of follow-on sense because you've heard it already. Today, we're not going to rehash all of that stuff, but um, we are going to talk about the uh, stand your ground laws, and we're going to unpack those and talk about the ins and outs. I am going to, for those of you who did not listen to last week's show, and particularly for those of you who uh, may be listening from outside the United States, I have a lot of listeners who are not in the U.S., so if you are unfamiliar with the facts of this case, I will give you a um, quick overview about what this case is about. In a nutshell, in February 2012, Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old unarmed African-American boy, was shot to death by an armed Hispanic man by the name of George Zimmerman, who attacked Martin in a Florida neighborhood after reporting to the police that Martin looked suspicious. In Zimmerman's words, this guy looks like he's up to no good. He's on drugs or something. Uh, it's raining, and he's just walking around. That's what Zimmerman said to the 911 operator that he called. The 911 operator told Zimmerman not to follow uh, Trayvon Martin, and uh, Zimmerman followed him anyway, an argument ensued, and Martin ended up dead. Mr. Zimmerman's lawyers, interestingly, did not cite the stand your ground law in his defense. They used straight self-defense, but when the judge explained the statute in her jury instructions, um, she she did refer to the stand your ground law. So today we're going to explore this law, what it means, what it was intended to accomplish, and how it is used. As an aside, uh, George Zimmerman was charged with second-degree murder and manslaughter, and he was acquitted of both. Last week when I did the show on the 19 things you can do in the wake of this case, one of the things that I urged you to do was to understand the issues and the laws for yourself. To that end, you can find a link to the final jury instructions from the case on my flagship website at www.spoa.com. If you are uh, one of my Facebook fans, you can also find a link that I posted last week to the jury instructions at facebook.com slash the Speedway Show, and Speedway spelled 
uh, S-P-I-W-E, which you ought to know if you happen to be watching this show. I urge you to read those jury instructions so you can get an idea of what the jury instructions, well, uh, so you can get an idea of what jury instructions look like in general, and so you can see the context in which the jurors made their decision in this case. You might be surprised at all of the outs they were given for finding that actually the homicide was justified. And the question for you is, if you had the same evidence and you couldn't base the decision on your own personal opinion or your own personal bias or conviction or you know desires, would you have found differently from what the jury found based on those instructions? It's an interesting question. But now let's talk about the background. A stand-your-ground law is basically a type of self-defense law that gives people the right to use reasonable force to defend themselves without any requirement that they either evade or retreat from a dangerous situation. One key distinction is whether the concept only applies to defending a home or a vehicle or whether it applies to all lawfully occupied locations. Under these legal concepts, a person is justified in using deadly force in certain situations, and the stand-your-ground law would be a defense or an immunity to criminal charges or to a civil suit. Um, now, I've said two things that you may not be entirely sure about, uh, immunity uh, versus self-defense. So here's the difference. The difference between immunity and self-defense is that an immunity basically bars a lawsuit or charges or detention or arrest. Um, so if you have immunity, you, you, you see this on on shows on on tv shows all the time where the, they do the who done it stuff and 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 you know maybe the diplomat was charged with you know uh killing someone and the diplomat says oh but i have diplomatic immunity which basically means as a diplomat he cannot even be charged with a crime so immunity basically or you see witnesses who are given immunity in exchange for their testimony against someone else and immunity means that they can't even be charged with that crime. Um, that is not the same thing as a defense. So if you hear lawyers or you hear on TV people talking about an affirmative defense, basically it allows the person to still be charged or sued, but uh, the defense basically means they can offer some sort of mitigating circumstance that justifies the conduct. So, for example, if a woman kills her husband who um, and she is charged with murder uh, and maybe she's charged with manslaughter, she can present a – she doesn't have immunity from being charged, but she can present an affirmative defense or she can present a defense. And maybe the defense is that he was in the process of beating her, he'd beaten her for the past 27 years, and he had threatened her life and – uh, because he was beating her while he was holding a lighter uh, in one hand and he was hitting her over the head with a can of uh, gasoline, she reasonably believed that uh, he was going to kill her and um, he was going to do what he had promised all along, so she stabbed him and killed him. 
that would be a defense as opposed to immunity. Now, we turn back to the Florida Stand Your Ground Law. It does allow for an immunity hearing before the trial. Uh, Interestingly, Zimmerman's lawyers decided not to pursue it. Uh, But the jurors were told in the final instructions that they should acquit Zimmerman if they found that he had no duty to retreat and he had a right to stand his ground and meet force with force, including deadly force, if he reasonably believed that it was necessary. A close cousin of the stand-your-ground law is the Castle Doctrine, which has been adopted by more than half of the states in the United States. Under this doctrine, it basically is called the Castle Doctrine basically because it, it stems from the notion that a man's home is his castle. Under this doctrine, a person has no duty to retreat when their home is attacked. The primary difference between the Castle Doctrine and the Stand Your Ground Doctrine is that some uh, some states go a step further than the Castle Doctrine um, and basically remove the duty to retreat from other locations. So in other words, the Castle Doctrine basically allows you to defend your home and yourself when you are when someone comes into your home, someone comes into your castle. Whereas the Stand Your Ground Doctrine basically says anywhere that you are legally located, whether it is on the uh, somewhere else in your neighborhood, in the parking lot, over at the gym, wherever you are, as long as you're legally there, you get to stand your ground. Stand your ground, line in the sand, or no duty to retreat laws, as they're some, sometimes called, um, basically say that a person has no duty or other requirement to abandon a place where they have a right to be. You don't have to give up ground to an assailant. Under these laws, there is no duty to retreat from anywhere that you are. And the reason this is a distinction is because up until the standard ground laws came along, um, there were a lot of cases, there was a lot of case law historically that actually required that before you use deadly force, you have to make an effort to retreat or withdraw from the situation if you can do so safely or <laughs> if you think you can do so safely. So what that means for the, the, the Trayvon Martin case is that actually in theory, both George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin were covered under the Stand Your Ground Law insofar as neither one of them had a duty to retreat since they were both legally in the neighborhood where they were. While Zimmerman claims Trayvon attacked him, we know from the evidence that Trayvon only had a packet of Skittles and no weapon, and that based on Zimmerman's 911 call, he is the one who pursued Trayvon Martin even after being told by the 911 operator not to do so. Under that scenario, then, Trayvon had no duty to retreat because he was legally where he was, and therefore he was legally entitled to defend himself when Zimmerman came up on him. But in the end, since Zimmerman was the only one who survived to tell his side of the story, he basically got the benefit of the Stand Your Ground Law under the theory that he was the one in fear for his life and that actually once, you know, Apparently, once he approached Trayvon, Trayvon was the one who attacked him. Before Florida's Stand Your Ground Law was passed, and that was back in 2005, the
The instruction would have actually read that Zimmerman cannot justify his use of force likely to cause death or great bodily injury if, by retreating, he could have avoided the need to use that force. And then the argument would have been, you know, at that point, you know, at what point should he have retreated? And you see how critical the law and the jury instructions are because in the current scenario, the jury acquitted Zimmerman, whereas under the old law, he might have been convicted because he was the initial aggressor. Now, his argument would have been that actually at the time that he pulled out the weapon and shot it, he was not able to retreat because um, I believe his his position was that Trayvon Martin at that point was on top of him, so there was no way that he could have retreated. But were there opportunities to retreat before, given that he was the initial aggressor, I would argue, Oh, of course they were. And so perhaps the the case would have turned on a very different focus of the facts had the old law still been in place. So let's talk a little bit about the history of stand-your-ground laws and how did these laws even come about in the first place. Generally, stand-your-ground laws date back over 100 years, and they are based on common law, which is basically a fancy way of saying court cases, or statutory laws, um, which are statutes that are passed by the states and the federal government over you know, a wide, wide range of different things. The first and oldest case I could find on topic was the Supreme Court case of Beard versus the United States, which was decided back in 1895. To give you a sense of the vastly different cultural context back then, I will read you the beginning of the opinion, which went like this. The plaintiff in error, a white man and not an Indian, was indicted in the Circuit Court of the United States for the Western District of Arkansas for the crime of having killed and murdered in the Indian country, and within that district, one Will Jones, also a white person and not an Indian. I have posted a link to the opinion on speedway.com, and I also uh, floated it out uh, the week before on my Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash The Speedway Show, in part because it is such an interesting case, but also because if you're going to take part, as I've said, if you're going to take part in a heated debate over a law, I think it's right that you understand what that law is and what some of the history and the background is. Why do I say the Beard case is so interesting? Well, because the facts, frankly, were pretty were just pretty interesting. It's a case about a fight that Mr. Beard, the defendant, had with three brothers who were his three nephews over a cow. Yes, I said a cow that he was entitled to keep in exchange for keeping and sheltering one of the nephews for several years. When the nephew had decided at some point that he was going to leave, 
um, he and his brothers wanted to take the cow with them. Mr. Beard staked his claim to the cow and basically said, hey, I am entitled to keep this cow under the agreement that we had that I'm going to take care of this kid and I'm going to get the cow in exchange. And um, he refused to relinquish the cow unless they showed up with a court order to take it away. Well, the brothers didn't show up with a court order. They showed up with pistols, and they decided that they were going to forcibly take the cow. So first, uh, Mr. Beard's wife was by herself at home, and um, she shooed them away and managed to take the cow away from them and put it back in the um, uh, in the area in the pen where it was. And um, meanwhile, Mr. Beard comes home carrying his shotgun, which he routinely took around with him for protection, and uh, a um, a confrontation ensues between Mr. Beard and the three brothers. And in the melee that ensued, where Mr. Beard discovered that um, at least one of the brothers had a pistol, I think it might have been more than one, but Mr. Beard tried to disarm and beat the nephews with his shotgun, and shucks, he happened to kill one of them in the process. Oops. The trial court initially found him guilty of manslaughter, and the Supreme Court reversed that decision, finding that a man who was on his premises when he came under attack and did not provoke the assault and had at the time reasonable grounds to believe and in good faith believed that the deceased intended to take his life, uh, you know, because of the pistol, because of the pistol he had with him, or do him great bodily harm, that uh, actually Mr. Beard was not obliged to retreat nor to consider whether he could safely retreat, but was entitled to stand his ground. There you have the beginning of the stand your ground laws. Many states have some form of castle doctrine or stand your ground law, although I have to tell you the language can vary significantly from state to state, which means the outcome in a jury trial can also vary from guilt to innocence and uh, all the way, everything in between with lesser included offenses and so on. The states that have some one form of law or other or some blended combination of both include Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, California, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Massachusetts, although the languages I use that very loosely here, um, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. That's over half the states in the Union. So if one of those states is a state that you live in, then you know that you need to look at the law in your state to see what the actual language is so that you know what your uh, law requires. Now, stand-your-ground laws are frequently criticized, and they're called shoot-first laws by critics, because they tend to encourage a shoot-first mentality. Now let's talk about the one, the situation of Florida. According to the state crime statistics, Florida averaged something like 12, what they call justifiable homicide deaths a year, 
from 2000 to 2004. And if you're wondering what justifiable homicide is, again, let me point you back to the jury instructions from the Trayvon Martin case because the judge actually does a nice job of articulating what justifiable homicide is. So click on the link for that particular article when you get to the posting for the show on speedway.com or on the Facebook page and take a look at what the judge instructs the jury about justifiable homicide. Now, back to the Florida laws. After Florida was the first state to pass the Stand Your Ground law in 2005, the number of quote-unquote justifiable deaths has almost tripled to an average of 35 a year, an increase of 283% from 2005 to 2010. As you can imagine, critics of these laws argue that Florida law makes it really difficult to prosecute cases against people who shoot others and then claim self-defense. I was personally kind of surprised at how many different ways there were for the jury to find that uh, George Zimmerman was not guilty of uh, any crime with respect to Trayvon Martin because of all the justifiable ways that um, the Florida law allows the um, shooter to basically claim justifiable homicide and self-defense. The shooter can argue basically that he felt threatened, and in most cases the only witness who could have argued otherwise is dead. So what is he going to say? And I think that was one of the critical challenges in this particular case, that you've got a fight that happened between two people. There was only one person left to tell the story, and it was at night, so nobody got a really good look. And uh, so you have, you know, people trying to reconstruct who was it who yelled and who was actually on top of whom and at what point. And it was just, um, at least from what I heard, and I didn't follow every single bit of testimony that uh, was discussed, but it just seemed to me like it, it became quite difficult for anybody to truly come up with proof beyond a reasonable doubt to argue that Zimmerman, you know, whether or not Zimmerman truly felt like he was um, he was uh, in fear for his life and, and whether he was justified, because there's some aspect of that that, frankly, looks kind of like a subjective standard. The problem is inherent, frankly, in all self-defense laws, not just stand your ground laws. Before passage of the law, um, you know, the Miami police chief, John F. Timoney, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, calls the law unnecessary and dangerous in that whether it's trick-or-treaters or or kids playing in the yard of someone who doesn't want them there or some drunk guy stumbling into the wrong house, you're encouraging people to possibly use deadly force where it shouldn't be used. Those are some of the criticisms of laws like this. Proponents of the law argue that individuals should have the right to use deadly force to defend themselves, if necessary, against bad people who may be armed. And um, that's an interesting argument, but uh, in this case, it doesn't apply, obviously, because as I said at the the top of the show, Trayvon Martin was not armed. So he wouldn't be one of those bad people against whom this law theoretically should have been used. Now, if you listened to last week's show, Trayvon Martin, 19 Things You Can Do, One of the other things I recommended is that you read and understand the laws for yourself when they are at issue, right? Read, read, read for yourself. So let's take a look at what the Florida Stand Your Ground 
statute actually says. Now, the law can be found in Florida Statute Chapter 776.013, and it is entitled Home Protection, Use of Deadly Force, Presumption of Fear of Death or Great Bodily Harm. That's the title it's not called. Actually, formally, it's not called the Stand Your Ground Statute. Um, Based on the title of the statute, you can already tell that it is not just a law that addresses the situation that occurred in the Martin case, but that it incorporates the Castle Doctrine as well. And uh, I, I do encourage you to read it for yourself because I want you to be informed. So I also included a link to this particular statute on the posting for this show. The Florida statute starts out this way. A person is presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent peril of death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another when using defensive force that is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm to another if the person against whom the defensive force was used was in the process of unlawfully and forcefully entering or had unlawfully and forcibly entered a dwelling, residence, or occupied vehicle, or if that person had removed or was attempting to remove another against that person's will from the dwelling, residence, or occupied vehicle. And the person whose use Uh, The person who uses defensive force knew or had reason to believe that an unlawful and forcible entry or unlawful and forcible act was occurring or had occurred. Now, I hate to say it, this is the way statutes are often written. They are compound sentences. They are long. They have multiple parts. They're kind of hard to understand. You've got to break them down into their individual elements. In a nutshell, this particular statute basically says, If you break into my house or my car, and I know you're breaking into my house or my car, or I know you've just broken into my house or my car, I get to shoot you. And the fact that you are breaking in or had just broken in gives me the right to claim that I was afraid that you were going to hurt or kill me. The same thing applies if you are trying to drag me out of my home or my car. Um, I get to use deadly force if I feel that that is necessary and there is a presumption that I had to because you're breaking into my house or my car. The statute does go on to curtail the freedom with which I get to claim self-defense in this way and the use of and, and, and claim that my use of deadly force was justified. There are several situations when you don't get the benefit of that presumption that you had justification, such as if the person breaking in lives with you or owns the property. In other words, you don't get to shoot your landlord if he comes in because you didn't pay the rent. You also don't get to shoot your spouse or your children or anybody else who lives in that house with you because you're ticked off and annoyed and you get into a domestic squabble. The third part of the statute, and by the way, it is a five-part statute. It has five main parts with subparts. But the third part of the statute is the one that was at issue in the Martin case, and it says, a person who is not engaged in an unlawful activity 
and who is attacked in any other place where she or he has a right to be, has no duty to retreat, and has the right to stand his or her ground and meet force with force, including deadly force if he or she reasonably believes it is necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another or to prevent the commission of a forcible felony. Now, I'm sure when the statute was written, the drafters had in mind a legitimate situations of self-defense. I don't believe that anyone could have possibly expected that a vigilante neighborhood watchman was going to run around his neighborhood stalking and killing unarmed boys. But here we find ourselves. I will point out some interesting magic language in this Florida statute. In law, there are certain things that are what we call magic language. And... Um, Magic language is language that means something very specific. So in this particular case, our magic language is that in the Florida statute, it says that the person who is attacked and defends himself can use deadly force if he or she reasonably believes. Hear that? If he or she reasonably believes that it was necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself. If, for example, Trayvon had been running away at the time Zimmerman shot him, Zimmerman could not have taken advantage of this law because it would have been unlikely that with Trayvon running away, Zimmerman reasonably believed that he was still in danger. This is why it's so significant that even though Zimmerman was the one who followed Trayvon after the 911 operator told him not to, he claimed that Zimmerman was the one who attacked him because the statute specifically gives includes language that one who is attacked and defends himself can use deadly force if he or she reasonably believes. So the first thing that I have to demonstrate is I was the one who was attacked. It is also significant that Zimmerman was able to convince the jury that his belief in his own danger was reasonable, which is why the photos of him after the fight mattered so much. If he hadn't had a scratch on him, it would have been much harder for him to convince the jury that his belief that he was in danger was reasonable, especially when he was the aggressor and especially since he had the gun. So you see how easily a, a, the outcome of an entire case can turn on the language, the language, the language, and the instructions that are given to the jury. Now, moving right along, let's talk about um, the Attorney General for just a moment. In a July 16, 2013 speech, in the wake of the jury verdict acquitting George Zimmerman of charges stemming from the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, criticized the Stand Your Ground laws, saying they senselessly expand the concept of self-defense and so dangerous conflicts in our neighborhoods. I think that's especially true now that we see how these statutes can be used in situations like this that um, really seem to be more of an unintended use and an unintended consequence. Now, remember that I said Zimmerman's defense lawyers did not invoke 
the standard ground law during the trial, although the jury instruction was given to address it. Part of the reason, I think, they might not have used it could have been because Zimmerman claimed he was restrained at the time of the shooting and had no option to retreat. So they might not have thought it as relevant as just using the straight self-defense that they used as their official defense. And even then, you know, the judge's instructions, interestingly, included the stand-your-ground law. Now, if I was the defense, if I was the prosecution, in that case, I would have objected vehemently to the use of the stand-your-ground law since the the defendant was only invoking self-defense. And maybe the prosecution did, and the judge decided to allow that particular instruction, which sometimes is how these situations tend to go, which may be how it ended up in front of the jury in the first place. Some of you may know the answer to that, because I didn't follow the the trial blow by blow that closely to have the answer. But there you have it. Now, while many people have opinions about this case, it is clear, at least to me, that Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, believes that it was this Sandra Ground Law was at least one reason why her son did not receive justice. She told a crowd at the National Urban League's annual conference that she feels that Florida's stand-your-ground law was the reason her son's killer was not held accountable for his death. She said this, a law that has prevented the person who shot and killed my son to be held accountable and to pay for this awful crime. Um, That was her statement. Now, if you listened to the show uh, I did last week entitled Trayvon Martin, 19 Things You Can Do, you will have heard me talk about the fact that in every case that I'm familiar with, the jury takes very seriously its responsibility to render what it considers to be the right verdict based on the instructions and the law that the jury has to follow. I was therefore, uh, when I did the show, obviously of the opinion that the Martin jury was no different and probably felt exactly the same way. At that time, I uh, at the time I recorded that show, it was before the interview of juror number B29, who was interviewed this past week by Robin Roberts from the Good Morning America show. In addition to denying that race played a factor in the jury's deliberations, she also had this to say. For myself, he, being George Zimmerman, he's guilty because the evidence shows he's guilty of killing Trayvon Martin, but we couldn't prove that intentionally he killed him. And that's the way that the law was read to me. I know I went the right way because by the law and the way it was followed is the way it went. But if I would have used my heart, I probably would have went with a hung jury. So in other words, she would have hung this jury because they had to be unanimous. She would not have agreed with the acquittal had she had different instructions and had the law been stated differently to the jury. In other words, even though she believed that George Zimmerman was guilty of killing Trayvon Martin, the instructions and the laws they were given to follow required that she find him not guilty because the jury did not believe that the evidence met the required elements of manslaughter or second-degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And if you're wondering what on earth these instructions could have possibly said, again, you have access to them, go look at them for yourself on the website. And as an aside, it is a very common thing for jurors to be instructed that they specifically should not render a verdict based on their own personal opinions, sympathy, anger, or bias, but only based on what the evidence demonstrates that they have been shown during the course of the trial. And, of course, in high-profile trials, this is precisely why juries are sequestered, which means during some or the entire period of the trial, they are kept in lockdown, and they're not allowed any contact with the outside world to avoid tainting their opinions or to avoid the risk that they might render a verdict based on public opinion or based on their own gut feelings or their biases or what their families think or what their friends said because they're supposed to only base it on the instructions and the evidence. And they have to decide uh, how credible the evidence was that was presented during the trial and how the jury interprets that evidence and what the jurors believe about the case as a result defines the ultimate verdict. One recent case that... um, I can think of that is a really good example of a just complete divergence of public opinion versus the jury verdict was the case of Casey Anthony. You might remember this case. Casey Anthony was charged with the 2008 murder of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee. They lived in Florida, actually, interestingly, coincidentally. The prosecution didn't just charge her with the murder, but they sought the death penalty as well. Casey's own mother was the one who reported Casey missing something after something like 31 days. And Casey's mom also told the police that her daughter's car smelled like a dead body had been in it. Casey could not get her story straight and gave all sorts of conflicting stories about how her daughter went missing before she was found dead. Then there were stories that Casey had gone shopping and partying and generally frolicked after the child was reported missing. Everybody thought that Casey was guilty and the TV pundits absolutely expected a conviction. Well, horror of horrors when Casey Anthony was acquitted on all charges and released from jail in July of 2011. There was insufficient evidence, apparently, for the jury to convict. And whether or not they personally thought Casey had done it, was beside the point. And I can only imagine how heartbroken the jury was to have to acquit this woman because, um, you know, killing your baby uh, and a two-year-old at that uh, must have been just absolutely heartbreaking. And, um, of course, the jurors were not allowed to factor in public opinion or anything outside the courtroom. And uh, sometimes when juries are sequestered and they render a verdict, I, I just have to think that they must be so shocked when they come out of cases like this this, only to hear the outcry and, as in the Trayvon Martin case, to watch the marches and the rallies and the, and the, and the cries that injustice has been done. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just got to be, in some respects, I think, quite the jarring uh, experience, which is precisely why, they're told not to pay attention to the media and everything else that's going on because it would be, I think, next to impossible not to take the public outcry into account had they been um, really paying attention and watching that, that, that stuff in the news stories before they went in 
to do their deliberation. And as a friend of mine said, you know, how could they be so naive that they would not know that this is the kind of outrage that this case would invoke? But we get back to that is not the standard for finding a verdict. Um, so anyway, that brings us to the end of this riveting topic. My my goal was not to, um, well, as, as as you know, I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for a long time. And um, there are uh, aspects of my view that are just rather clinically focused on uh, the legal aspects of the case. And, you know, I, as I said last week, I don't agree with this verdict and um, because I think there is just fundamentally something wrong with a situation where the obvious aggressor who is armed gets to shoot an unarmed child. And, uh, by the way, the, the, the armed aggressor is the adult, and uh, he walks up on an unarmed child, shoots him, and then gets to claim self-defense. There's just something fundamentally wrong with that picture, and we can uh, declare and we can talk all day about how the law actually allowed that to be the case because the jury instructions said what they said and the stand-your-ground law said what it said. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Trayvon Martin had the right to stand his ground too. And um, unfortunately for him, he didn't happen to have a gun, otherwise maybe he might still be alive today too. But um, my goal was to to try and get you to learn something interesting today, something that you might not have heard in the media before about this case. And I hope that this gives you a model for how you can approach high-profile, highly controversial cases like these to educate yourself and be better informed. So, you know, always ask the question, are the jury instructions online for this case, and what did they actually say? Um, what is this stand-your-ground law anyway? What does it actually say to the extent that the Florida legislators are defending this law? What on earth is in it that is, you know, worth defending? And, um, you know, I think part of the reason it is a it is being defended is because it's not just a stand-your-ground statute, right? It's a Castle Doctrine statute, and the Castle Doctrine has been recognized for long, long decades, decades, decades. And so over 100 years we have had the Castle Doctrine. And so I think that certainly in my head explains in part why the Florida legislature is saying, oh, yeah, you know, hear what you're saying, but we're not going to repeal this law. So all of those things give you a perspective. I'm not suggesting you should be happy with the outcome of this case, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you should stop doing all the other 19, uh, 18 things that I said you ought to do. But at least understand the climate and the environment, because then once we have a better understanding, we can better assess how it is that we can make a positive impact and what we can do to change what we can change. So tune in next week when I speak to my guest, Pastor Devin Miller, about a a, a different but somewhat related topic. And uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about next week is how should you stand? So when you have a life manual, mine happens to be the Bible, as is Pastor Devin Miller's. I do have friends, though, who use the Bhagavad Gita, the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, and um, the Quran, but 
you have your life manual in front of you, you flip through and you're seeing that um, there are things that it says that we should or should not do, and you look around you, or perhaps you look even in your life, and you see that uh, you're not following and others are not following. In fact, society is moving in a whole different direction. How should you stand? So that is what we're going to be talking about next week. Until then, this is Speeway saying go in peace, and if you do nothing else, stay informed. Thank you for joining us on The Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle thespeedwayshow. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply.